You're listening to the Skylight Books Podcast. We're an independent, general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening. Hi, everyone. Um, Welcome to the Skylight Books Crowdcast channel. My name is Hallie. I'm the events manager at Skylight. We're really, really excited to be doing this launch event for Death in the Mouth, a truly remarkable anthology um, you can purchase from Skylight. Sloan Leong is a self-taught cartoonist, illustrator, and writer. She is the creator of several graphic novels, From Under Mountains, Prism Stalker, A Map to the Sun, and Grave and I, and her fiction has appeared in many publications, including Dark Matter Magazine, Apex Magazine, Fireside Magazine, Analog, Realm Media, and many more. Sloan is currently living on Chinook land, what is near what is known as Portland, Oregon, with her family and three dogs. Cassie Hart is a Maori speculative fiction writer who enjoys delving into human nature in all its beauty and disarray. Um, over the past five years, she has published over 10 novels and novellas and has had her work printed in various anthologies, including A Foreign Country, Baby Teeth, Bite-Sized Tales of Horror, Shulu, Land of the Long White Cloud, Regeneration, and Year's Best AO, ooh, excuse me, I don't know how to pronounce this, Aotiora, New Zealand Science Fiction and Fantasy Volume 1. <laughs> Um, she also co-edited and contributed to the Sir Julius Bogle winning benefit anthology, Tales for Canterbury. She has been a finalist for the SJVs many times, as well as finalist for short fiction for the Australian Shadow Awards. In 2018, she was selected as one of six emerging Maori writers to participate in the Te Papa Incubator. excuse me. Um, program where she worked on her novel Butcher Bird, a supernatural suspense set under the watchful gaze of Mount Taranaki. Butcher Bird is releasing in 2021 from Hula. She lives with her husband, three daughters, an assortment of animals in beautiful Aotearoa. Can you pronounce that for me? I don't want to. It's a beautiful it's Al- word. Yeah, Aotearoa. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That is what she is. Um, so please join me in welcoming the two editors and our wonderful readers to the virtual stage. Yay, hi everybody. I'm so happy to be here launching the book with you all. Um, Yeah, uh, we have three lovely readers tonight and then uh, after they do their readings, we'll have like a little short discussion. Um, I'll talk a little bit about the book really quickly and Cassie, of course, jump in if you have something to say. Um, but yeah, basically, you know, horror, like many other genres and, you know, creative scenes is like pretty prohibitively white. So me and Cassie kind of made this book out of spite and also excitement for like, you know, BIPOC stories. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Um, Cassie was kind enough to, uh, I had no, I really didn't have any experience putting together an anthology or kickstarting anything that's always been very intimidating to me. Um, And Cassie uh, was just like generous enough to like take my hand and help me organize everything. We slushed together and yeah, it was such a fun uh, collaborative experience. 
yeah it was truly fantastic and um it was so joyful too like I think that's one of the things I loved about working on this project is um getting all these amazing stories from so many different cultures and sending letters to people like accepting their stories and having them be just so happy to be um included in in this project uh, yeah it was just yeah full of joy it was wonderful wonderful yeah. experience totally yeah um yeah, do you have anything else to add or should we introduce our authors? Yeah, I think we should introduce our authors. Okay. Yeah. You can go ahead and start. All right. Okay. Um, I want to introduce firstly to you um, Beatrice Eicher, who grew up in the picturesque and undoubtedly haunted Valley of the Great Smoky Mountains. A member of the Horror Writers Association, they are a 2022 Voodoo Noughts, I said that right, fellow, and the managing editor of the Winnow an LGBTQ plus literary magazine. Their work appears and is forthcoming in issues of Fire magazine, Fantasy magazine, Nightmare magazine, and others. Additionally, they are a contributor contributor oh, um, to in Death in the Mouth, obviously, because we're here, um, horror anthology. <laughs> and, uh, Beatrice lives in New England, where they enjoy the snow with their husband, dog, two cats, and robust tarot deck collection. Welcome, Beatrice. So happy to have you here. Nice. Um, and we also have Kaming Chang, a Kuneman Fellow, a Lambda Literary Award finalist, and a National Book Foundation 5 Under 35 honoree. She's the author of the New York Times Book Review Editor's Choice novel, Bestiary, um, which was longlisted for the Center for Fiction First Novel Prize and the Penn Faulkner Award. Um, in 2021, her chapbook Bone House was published by Bull City Press, um, and her most recent book is Gods of Want. Uh, her next book is a novel titled Organ Meats. Amazing. Um, Great titles. In California. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, yes. Yeah. Um, and last but not least, we have Karen Luachi, um, who was born in South America, grew up in Canada, and worked in the Arctic. She has been a creative writing instructor, adult education teacher, and a volunteer in a maximum security prison. Her novels have been translated into French, Hebrew, and Japanese, and her short stories have been published in numerous anthologies, best of collections and magazines. When she isn't writing, she serves at the whim of a black cat. Welcome, everyone. Awesome. So happy to have you. Um, so uh karen i kind of had you as the first reader if you're comfortable sure um i know it took you a little bit uh, like a minute to get on but if you're down i would love to have you read well, it's my fault for being everything being a little late uh technically no, no, it's, it's i totally apologize fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good um so did you want me to just start reading <laughs> I mean, you can read whatever portion of the story you want. We'll probably cap it at like 10 minutes, if that's cool. Sure. I don't know how many pages that'll be, um, but I'll go and I'll look over here. Um, I have it on a separate computer, so if I'm looking away, it's not because I don't want to look at your beautiful faces. <laughs> okay, I'm going to read from okay. the beginning of the story and I'll, I guess, um, talk about it a little bit. Um, it's called The Black Hole of Beaumont, and I really wanted to... I love the idea in horror of, you know, enclosed um, communities. And so I had an idea of uh, writing a bunch of linked short stories that all take place in a, in a single location. And the community is this Northern um, Canadian town that's based, you know, somewhere high along the Hudson Bay, James Bay area. Um, and it's a fictional town, but it's based in some of my experiences 
um, in that part of the country. And so this is the first first story that I that kind of came to me to to set in this town where all sorts of weird things happen. And this, I'm so happy that Sloan and Cassie accepted the story for the anthology and a beautiful illustration that was that was done as well. So this is the black hole of Beaumont. The black hole appeared above Beaumont overnight. It was disc-shaped, flat, and spread over the elementary school, the Anglican church, and the funeral home, which all happened to be side by side. The hole floated above 15,000 feet in the air, the altitude of an airplane, like a matte black oil spill in the ether. No sound or scent emanated from it. Juliana's husband, Tom, said it looked like the mouth of hell come to swallow the innocent and the guilty. Juliana didn't feel anything malevolent about the hole, but she understood why it disconcerted the entire town of 3,502 souls, some of whom she was sure had reason to fear cosmic judgment. The hole seemed to be lowering incrementally from its pasted position in the sky, though it was impossible to truly tell. That was just her impression, a strange feeling descending upon her from staring at it through her bedroom window. It was important for Juliana to understand the hole, so she began to paint it. Lying in bed at night with Tom snoring lightly, light, lightly beside her, she tried to discern the edges of the hole by the limbing of stars. The truth was the black could have been made of some sort of substance, not a hole at all. It seemed to exist in such an absent state, absent even of absence, that it was impossible to tell even in broad daylight. At night, it gave twice as dark. While she felt heavy in the sink of the bed, concentrating on the phenomenon outside the window elicited a sort of lightheadedness or displacement, like a severe sort of meditation. She eased out from beneath the covers and into the cold rasp of winter air that permeated even indoors at this latitude, encouraged by Tom's scroogey insistence on keeping the heat low to save money. She had mentioned once that going light on his alcohol consumption would also save money, but that had ended an argument. Juliana paused at the side of the bed to gauge if her movement would wake her husband, his pale tattooed arm outflung from the top blanket. A little moonlight unobscured by the hole managed to illuminate the intricate black mask inked on the inside of his right bicep. He had drawn it long ago when they were in art school in Toronto, and they had gone together to have it made permanent on his skin. Now the gaze of it seemed both vacant and dire, like a ghost. Her studio sat along the same angle as the bedroom, with broad windows that allowed great swaths of natural light during the day. Tom's mother had used it as a sunroom when his parents had lived here, festooned it with plants and wicker furniture, the scent of mothballs and an infestation of lace doilies draped over every flat surface. It had never felt like her home until those remnants of another woman's life had been removed. Now the small space was occupied by her paint rack, the individual tubes hanging upside down like bats clipped to wires and mount mounted on a frame of simple pine. Tom had built her shelves for paper and canvas and they stood rigid along another wall. On the wall opposite the windows, a black sheet that she had tacked into the crown molding to absorb light behind her when she worked. From the corners of her eyes, the folds took on the shapes of ancient priests robed for ceremony. She didn't turn on any lamps, but sat at the chair and looked out at the hole as it hung above silhouetted rooftops. Shadows blurred across the blank canvas propped on the easel to her left. She knew then that she didn't want clarity, but the impression of the sheer black disc a suggestion of it, like catching a glimpse of a moving object. 
but she didn't start to draw or paint yet. Instead, she sat all night looking up at the void. Fifteen years ago, after graduating art school, she'd moved to Beaumont with Tom so he could take care of his aging, ailing parents. The time she'd reassured him that she could paint anywhere. Beaumont's picturesque northern forestry, Hudson Bay sunrises and extreme winter weather would be plenty of inspiration. She had never lived in a small town. Her parents were Hong Kong immigrants from the 1970s, and piling extended families into small urban square footage had been her life until university dorm living. The idea of a house with its own lawn and sunroom where she could set up her studio seemed romantic. Back then, Tom possessed that sort of gentle romance in every gesture and beguiled her with his expressive mouth and eyes she couldn't stop drawing. In some light, they looked blue, in others green. He was wild and kind and came from a world that seemed exotic. His father owned the town garage, a lifelong mechanic. His mother, a housewife who doted on her son. They'd struggled as a family to understand Tom's penchant for pretty things and art. But he was dutiful in the end, and his mother's onset of dementia meant he needed to return home. How could Juliana begrudge him that? Of course, she'd gone with him and moved into the cottage's addition, which she shared with Tom, while his parents were still mobile enough to live in the main house. Five years later, he put both parents into assisted living, as his father's health declined, an Adam and smoker all his life, and his mother's dementia inflated to something resembling demonic possession. Maybe she should have anticipated that such possession would not remain in one body. Over time, so slowly as to be virtually undetectable, her now-husband Tom Hughes also became something else. No longer the man she loved, no longer the artist who appreciated pretty things and existential, existential nuance. The quaint cottage and all the opportunities to learn new activities, like curling and camping, became instead the trappings of a limited existence in a town hewed away from the rest of the country once snow hurricaned across the water and buried the only land access into the community. The train couldn't run and the bay froze over, blocking all water transport too. It was in December, in this full Nelson grip of winter, a week before Christmas, that the black hole appeared. How are we on time? You can maybe do like another page or sure. something. Sure. If you'd like. Cool. Ricky, a young Cree man and junior mechanic down at Tom's garage, suggested flying a drone up to the hole. He had ordered one last year, and all summer this whirring white spider traversed the low heavens, buzzing the roofs along Main Street and the crucifix on the church until the RCMP had to issue Ricky a warning. Now the whole town got behind Ricky and his drone to encourage the possible sacrifice of the machine to the black cosmic disc. Lila at the Beaumont Gazette called it the BCD. This wasn't the first unusual incident to happen in Beaumont. Since the town's inception as a fur trading post in the 17th century, historical rumor and unverified phenomena seemed to keep happening. Spontaneous disappearances, cryptid sightings, a regular occurrence of UFOs. Newspaper articles, first on microsheaf and now on digital, confirmed the ubiquity of such strangeness. It had been a curious lure for Juliana in her first couple years. Sometimes investigations winnowed north from the big cities, like salmon bullying their way upstream. But as nobody liked to be caught in Beaumont over winter, if the cases weren't solved by the first snowfall, the investigators returned to warmer, saner climes. Eventually, people shrugged off the oddness. It became a sort of national legend and a point of tourism, right along with the reenacted fur trading post that nobody visited. The RCMP had given up reporting the weird call-ins and only rarely ventured out of town limits when there was a Bigfoot sighting or something akin. 
This, however, was Beaumont's first black cosmic disc. The whole town, even the children, showed up for Ricky's drone mission. Juliana stood with Lila, wrapped in her knockoff Canada Goose parka, and wearing sunshades against the glaring winter sun and its diamond-bright reflection off the ground snow. They only had a handful of hours before dust began to sink again. Tom, who couldn't help but order Ricky around, even outside of work, stood near the younger man, gesticulating with fervor. He was trying to direct Ricky on how to fly the drone. The boy, obviously tolerant and annoyed in equal measure, Tom was no longer that gamin artist, but a solid chunk of a man with many more tattoos, listened and nodded, then pushed Tom away. Juliana thought, I know how you feel. Eventually, Ricky seemed to have it figured out, and everyone watched it. He set his drone on a patch of gravel cleared from snow and stepped back with the remote control. He looked like a determined movie hero about to embark on a video game adventure, dark eyes squinting up at the black mass. The chattering of the crowd died down, though some people munched on snacks as they watched between Ricky and the hole overhead. Juliana looked up. The faceless, voiceless, colorless volume took up her sight. It felt like she could stretch her hand and run her fingers along the belly of it, like stroking a cat. The beauty was in its featureless, indifferent presence. It was so empty of anything that you could only put your own self into it. Those who feared saw fear. Those who were excited saw adventure. She, Juliana Lim, saw possibility. Something without form could be shaped, maybe. What if she sank her hands into the black and swished them around? Would she feel anything? Standing in the cold, she was desperate to feel something. The drone whirred into the air, a little engine of mercy, a helicopter from ice. It rose and bobbed and rose. Their necks craned and people shaded their eyes and one or two children exclaimed while their parents held on to them, as if the little ones would float up by some alien tractor beam and be whisked away. The drone kept going, the sound of its motors fading with distance, a smudge of white across the deep sea black. I don't think it'll make it, someone said. The BCD's too high. Sure enough, somewhere up there, the machine began to waver. They could no longer hear it, but Ricky huffed and looked down at his controls then up again. People were beginning to point. Then suddenly, the drone seemed to hit a ceiling and careened down in a screaming fury. Everyone shouted. Ricky frantically tried to gain control, but they all watched as the white spider crashed to the ground like a failed astronaut and broke apart. Sounds of dismay, condolences to Ricky for his brave soldier drone. One or two, cool, from the teenagers. Then Lila said, look. They all looked up again. Juliana grasped the sides of her faux fur hood. Clearly, the BCD had lowered dramatically enough that they could all discern the change in altitude. It seemed only a baseball's throw away from the cross on the Anglican church roof, sprawled wider to suffocate the sky, blotting the winter blue. They stood in dusk at high noon. Some of the parents began to pull their children away. People packed up their snacks. Maybe we ought to try a seaplane, Harry from the RCMP said. Who's going to fly it? Not me. The crowd dispersed in doldrum and ease and relative silence. Tom came over to look, dis looking disgusted, told him it wouldn't work. Did you? Juliana thought. You ready to go home? Her husband said, as if she were only here for him. She still held the fur on the, uh, either side of her face. Not yet. I'm going to stay here for a minute. He looked alarmed. What for? I don't know. I just want to. Suit yourself. He walked off, his boots crunching in the snow. Yes, she suited herself when Tom wasn't making her feel guilty for continuing to paint and sell her art to buyers in the South and across the country, because he'd given up, swallowed by the vortex of filial responsibility and abandoned dreams. She didn't watch him go, and he didn't turn around. 
Once upon a time, they could not take their eyes off each other. She had never been a great beauty. Tom had been attracted to her artistry first, but she didn't know when she had become this, something he could not wait to get away from. Yay. Thank you, Karen. Thank you. Um, we will talk more about this after all the readings. I'm very excited to ask about, you know, the germ of the story. Um, but yeah, let's go straight into our next reading. Uh, Kaming, are you down to read next? Yes, thank you so much for that reading. That was amazing. Um, and it was also really fun to follow along in the physical book. It's like, <laughs> it's like a fun story time. Anyway, um, yeah, I'll be reading from my story, The Three Resurrections of My Grandfather. Um, it's about sisters, and the sisters are named Sinew and Tendon because horror. Um, and uh, they have a grandfather who resurrects um, who dies and resurrects three times throughout his life. Um, and there are some brief references throughout the story to the TLC classic show, What Not to Wear. Because <laughs> I've always thought there was nothing more horrifying than that 360-degree mirror that they made contestants stand in front of. Um, I was like, that's the true stuff of horror and nightmares, is that, is that 365 mirror situation. But anyway, it's <laughs> so there are some references to that. Um, so I'll read just uh, a brief portion um, that's because it's uh, split up into three different subtitles, the first, second, and third resurrection, and this is the second one. The second resurrection of my grandfather as a housebound fly. My grandfather was cremated. We kept his ashes in a cardboard JCPenney shoebox, the only thing in our house that would fit all of him. My mother said we were going to have to bury him somewhere soon, because it was bad to keep the dead around the house. But when Tendon and I called the cemetery in the hills, they told us that the niche for an urn would cost $10,000 for the down payment alone. Our cemetery is on a hill, the man on the phone said to me. You can't beat our view. You can see the whole city from here. I said that dead people didn't need to see anything. What they needed was to eat. My mother set out dishes of shattered giraffe crackers and saran-wrapped whole oranges for our grandfather to digest as a ghost. We set the JCPenney shoebox, wearing its sash of duct tape, on the sofa where he used to sprawl and watch what not to wear. You are definitely not supposed to wear a JCPenney shoebox, I said. And my sister said, shut up. Our mother constructed a shrine of vinyl sofa cushions, then let three cigarettes, the, the licorice-scented brand he used to smoke, and stabbed them into a cookie tin full of sugar. Bow three times, my mother said, and I was a second too late with each bow, lagging behind Tendon. When we were finished bowing, my mother said we were allowed to eat the oranges, which were now blessed by his ghost. So Tendon and I split the fattest ones, the seeds rafting down our throats, bitter as bone. There was a fly hailing around the second orange, the one with skin thin like a scrotum, but when I reached my hands to clap it out of the air, the way my grandfather always did, his applause was slaughter. My mother slapped my arm. That fly is the soul of your grandfather, she said. Shrine flies can't be killed. That's why, my mother explained, the fly was trying to unstitch the skin of the orange. It was our grandfather, a recent refugee of his body, straying from the afterlife to eat something sweet. Tendon and I decided to lantern the fly. When our mother left for work, we cut the fly in a rinsed out chili sauce jar and stabbed holes into the lid. What do flies eat? Tendon asked me. I said I didn't know. All I remembered 
where the Animal Planet shows our grandfather used to watch during the commercial breaks of what not to wear, shows where cheetahs tackled goats and dismantled the dead, unpacking its belly like a suitcase. In those shows, flies wreathed the open carcass, licking the sugared glaze of the goat's eyes. They eat the dead, I said, so tendons searched the apartment for deceased material. We found the tail of a rat underneath the refrigerator, but when we threaded it through the hole in the jar lid, the fly flinched away from it. It has to be fresh dead, I said, remembering the TV chorus of flies singing around a rib cage. Tendon said we needed to kill something new. We have to hurry, she told me, because our grandfather is hungry. The fly's left wing was failing, folding in on itself, its furred belly reminding me of the hairs on our grandfather's neck, a black pelt I dreamed of combing in the winter. Tendon and I searched the street for roadkill. A stray dog shrieked on the blacktop, but there was only the rusted body of a squirrel, all skull. We have to kill something to feed our grandfather, Tendon said, but there weren't any living things in our street besides neighbors. Last year, there were persimmon trees here, but the city uprooted them because of the drought. The ghost eyes are gone now, my grandfather had said, and the stray cats got fried alive when they snuck into car engines to stay warm. He'll die as a fly, I said, then he'll have no soul. But at least, I said to Tendon, he probably wanted to be a fly. They're born in rivers, I said. You idiot, that's mosquitoes, Tendon said. We searched the street until evening when Tendon pointed up at the darkening sky and asked if the sun counted as a recent corpse. Sure, I told her, but how would we ever haul it home? When we walked back to the apartment and checked the chili jar we'd left by the steel kitchen sink, the jar was empty. The lid was still screwed on, punctuated with holes, but there was no fly, not even a severed wing. You made the holes too big, Tendon said to me, but I told her to be quiet. Listen, I said. There was a hum coming from the sofa, a sound that oiled the air, and when I walked toward it, I saw a shadow soiling the carpet. My grandfather was reclined on the sofa, his feet propped up on a patched cushion. His head was bald and braised like a tea egg, but otherwise he looked the same as I remembered him, the mole settling down on his lip like a fly. Tendon stood beside me and we stared down at him. He had a toothpick in his mouth, even though he had no teeth to pick and he sat up and rolled his shoulders. I'm not the one who put you in the jar, Tendon said, and I pinched her elbow until she winced and went silent. Can't stay long, my grandfather said. I asked him how he had resurrected without a river this time, and if he was here be because we hadn't fed him enough. The orange on the altar shriveled into a fist as I said it. I'm just here to speak to you, he said. I thought he might scold us for keeping him captive in glass, but instead he turned on the TV, fishing the remote from the crack between the cushions, and said he was thirsty. Tendon turned on the kitchen sink but couldn't find a cup, so she let the water dress her palms like tinsel and tried to bring it to the brim of our grandfather's mouth. Instead, she slobbered water all over the carpet. What my grandfather said to me, so quiet that I could barely hear him over the TV, the thing is, he said, you can choose whether to be dead or not. I didn't choose it when I was young. Back during the war, I told myself I'd rather die of my own body than be killed. I knew there was a hole in my stomach, and I let it widen and widen. I waited for it to halo me completely. completely. You can't do anything about things like that.
but it doesn't hurt when your belly fills with flies. It feels like never being hungry again. My mouth, the mouth of a river. I really hope you stop making that face, that same face your mother makes. My little sour, remember not to swap flies because every single one is someone loved. Thank you. And that's the end of that, <laughs> that resurrection. Yay. Yay. God, so good. Thank you, Kaming. Um, wonderful. Uh, and then we have our last reading for tonight from Beatrice Eicher. Uh, yeah, hey, take it away. Can you hear me? Excellent. Um, can yes. You Okay, um, my that just Oh, Beatrice, you're kind of crackling a little bit. Is anyone else getting that or you're kind of like cutting in and out? Beatrice, maybe try turning down the volume on your computer. Turning down the volume? That can help because it like, um, how's that? I still hear the clicking and I hear you faintly. How's that? Uh, no. Now you're still cutting in and out. The clicking. Oh, no. Do you have a microphone plugged in? Uh, how's that? I do have a microphone. I don't know. I think maybe you just speak a little bit closer to it. I still hear the clicking, but you're you're coming through okay. Like I can still hear you. Okay. I will go on. Um, this was called Keep and I want a story about uh, mental illness, basically. I kind of personify mental illness into what I perceived it to be, which was a very uh, not great person. So here it is. It be for hallways to be this bright. He ought to be deaf, and I should be executioner, wrapping my fingers round the throats of the. God, that sounds lovely. In the light, my plump fingers glisten. I, I watch a sparkle singing fluorescence. When the skin is in the cool air. Whirl my entire hand in my mouth and growl in happiness out into the summer again. There are really teeth inside of me, but I'll get to those later. My other hand has no, it's a black mic off switch. The smooth cord is embedded and trickling down my body 
in upcurried zigzags before touching the cold linoleum floor. I've never seen linoleum flooring before. And I'm trapped here in this hallway with linoleum flooring. It's the odor of bleach howls in the silence, all but salting me. Excuse me, I say into the microphone. Look right. There's a desktop computer on a card table, but I'm certain the noise came from here. Excuse me, I say again. Gasp sound out of the speakers. The small table isn't meant to carry something as heavy as a computer, and I estimate I can make it shatter to the ground within five seconds. I slam my the one fingers on the table folds to the floor without resistance. The computer tumbles after it, making a sad sense. I turn to survey the rest of the glaring hallway, but a move brings my eyes back to the computer, which have righted paired themselves. Interesting. Feeling a taunt. The computer in a different way, but it's unchanging beneath the lighting. Bruises of copper scattered age coating. It's old, not too old to be connected. I consider thinking how that could be. What? First, pulp of padded strings and warm but nothing of substance. Still, there's something familiar about it. Before, I shake before they have the answer, no way. Okay, I can do. I just want to pulp bags, bags. Fuck, I love people bag me. I feel them handing me Soaked crop ladder. But Pulp's voice is as I'd like it to have to build to that. I'm hoping my microphone wasn't apologized for. Thank you for that. Amazing. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you, everyone, for reading. That was so cool. It's so fun to, like Kami was saying, read along in the book. It just, like, adds another layer of life to the story. Ah, I love it. I'm just, like, on cloud nine right now. <laughs> um, so, yeah, if anyone wants to um, put some questions in the chat, feel free to, and we'll, like, try and get to them um, during this discussion. But, yeah. Um, I'm really excited to just kind of chat with you all about your stories. Um, I mean, the first one I kind of want to get into is just like, what was your inspiration? I know that's like really annoying and it doesn't have to be like a direct, you know, correlation. Like I know sometimes when I'm writing a story, I'm just like going on vibes. Like we are discovering this as we are writing it. Um, but yeah, I would love to know more just about uh, how you develop the stories. Um, Karen, do you want to go first? 
Oh, Karen, you're muted. It's like I'm learning technology in the moment. Um, I'm sorry, I muted you because I thought maybe the clicking was coming from somewhere else. So that was that was me. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fine. No, I, I couldn't figure out how to mute myself. So I'm glad that somebody muted me. Um, I need you in real life. <laughs> um, I, I, but I, I always wanted to delve more into horror. And I guess the, um, like my taste in horror as a genre um, I mean, I like all different types, but I think I veer more towards the existential type. So that was my um, initial inspiration is, is an existential uh, kind of situation. And I didn't want to explain it, you know, from top to bottom. I wanted to just um, drop the character, therefore the reader in this situation and see how that impacted her internally. And um, I didn't want to have to like diagram it in any way. And I started thinking about that my town, Beaumont, which means beautiful death um, for those who speak French or don't speak French. Um, and I, I wanted to do something, you know, as a first introduction into this town that would be kind of like unconventional. So even though in the story it mentioned that there are cryptic sightings and Bigfoot sightings and UFOs, I wanted something a little bit more uh, out of the box and 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 because it's such an isolated location and i love you know a sense of isolation both internally and externally and and how there's kind of an um, automatic horror in that in its own way and and from there that's how it started so i started with a very um vague concept and then the character just kind of came to life on the page and it just the, the, the story flowed really easily and really quickly for me which is always a good sign. And uh, so that was my inception for it. Nice. You're kind of building your own uh, castle rock, I see. <laughs> Very cool. Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, gaming. Yeah. Also, it's very suddenly dark in my room. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like it's just like, ooh, it's like speaking of a very horror moody. movie, I'm like jump scares, like ready to come out. <laughs> Yeah, I had a really, I had a really distinct inspiration for this story, which I usually never do. But I remember being around shrines, and there'd be a fly buzzing around the fruit or something like that, and I would reach out to slap it, and my mom or my aunt would be like, "No, don't do that! You can't kill the shrine fly because <laughs> all of the flies are the reincarnated souls of the people that were mourning. So you can't kill the fly." Um, and I remember right before I wrote this story. Um, we had got, got, um, gone on like tomb sweeping day to to um, like an urn niche, and I was just walking around like carrying these flowers and oranges, and suddenly I felt like this this arm like bar me from moving, and it was my aunt. She's like, "Look down, there's a millipede at your feet. You can't step on it. <laughs> Don't crush it." Um, and so I, I was suddenly so aware of all these other life forms that were kind of around the graves of the dead or the resting places of the dead and how they carried on the life or the ghost or the spirit of the person. And I remember asking my aunt, like, oh, why? Like, because when I was little, I was like, why a fly? Like, I wouldn't want to be a fly. That doesn't seem that fun or a millipede. And, and she's like, oh, because they're spying on us. Like, they want to know what's going on. Like they want to check in and, and know how, like what our conversations are. So they're listening to us. They're eavesdrop, eavesdropping on us through the bodies of these insects. And everything else like, oh my God, we're being bugged. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was like, ooh, pun, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
I took it very literally. It's so cool. yeah, but I, I thought that was really, there was something so sweet. I was like, oh, like my grandpa is this fly and he's buzzing around the room because he wants to listen in our conversations and be a part of our life. So I started to think like, what would it look like in this most literal form that's both like beautiful and horrific to see someone take on and become these different life forms and to resurrect. And this idea that the the boundaries between the living and the dead, which I feel like is what horror is all about, is like collapsing those boundaries between life and death. Um, and so I really wanted to kind of marry and um, blur those those boundaries and even boundaries between species as well. So it's like multiple forms of blurry. So cool. I absolutely love that. I mean, yeah, life and death and also just like the role insects play in like decay uh, and like, like our loved ones inhabiting that role can be off-putting but I just love how like really intimate it is in your story so cool uh Beatrice mm -hmm. okay uh, my inspiration was um I wanted to write a story that was also kind of about isolation being isolated inside of a uh Right, because as a play light, I feel like whenever I write horror, oftentimes dark, dingy, that kind of vibe. And to do something and very different. And uh, I, feel, I, I feel like kind of goes along with the platonic don't of it jarring and like it wakes. Like, I've got a hand on your phone, and there's music that comes, like, comes back to life. And, like, I wanted it to be very awful and kind of unsettling, but not in a dark way. Kind of, like, overwhelming, kind of uncomfortable way. Very cool. Cassie, do you want to ask the next? Next question. Yeah, um, we'd really love to hear some of your early experiences with uh, with horror as a genre and how that kind of shapes your storytelling, the way you tell stories. Um, want to go, go in the same order? Yeah, sure. Yeah, why not? <laughs> um, I actually, when I thought back, I, I wrote an article um, a few years ago about I guess my experience with horror and it, that actually sparked me thinking because I hadn't really consciously thought about it. And I realized that horror was as early a genre that I got into as science fiction, you know, <laughs> when I saw Star Wars at a very young age. And I remember some of my um, earliest books I were reading, was reading was like young adult horror novels, um, intentionally or not. You know, my parents let me watch all the Stephen King films <laughs> um, when I was really young. and indelibly that marked me in good and bad ways and but i i especially love ghost stories um uh and yeah that I, I i've just always been into horror in one way or another but i didn't you know focus on it to write until much later even though you know like some of my favorite movies are in the genre like aliens and um event horizon and and stuff so definitely was in the media was the was my first introduction and in young adult literature and then as I grew older 
you know, I focused on on different things, but horror was always there at the back of my mind. And I love seeing how much of a, I guess, a, I never really went away, but there is a resurgence of it, especially in film in a certain way that's that's really pushing boundaries like Kaming mentioned and and crossing borders. And I love to see that. And so it's it's been on my mind definitely as a genre I wanted to explore more because I feel um I feel like everybody lives their own version of horror in some way or another. And so it's, it's, you know, poking into that as a writer is just fertile ground. And, um, and it's all there in my subconscious when I was thinking about it. But yeah. I was scarred quite early as a child, like seeing the exorcist and the omen and all the Stephen, all the Stephen King films, the great Stephen King films from the eighties and, and all of what I think back and it's like, yeah, you know, I had so many nightmares of like rabid dogs and girls with blood running down their face and mm. <laughs> the whole thing and um, and religious horror and demonic possession and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. And for some reason, I'm still, you know, a little bit sane. So it didn't, you know, do me so much damage. But yeah, I do. I do feel especially now, like the older I get, the more I realize that we all are living a version of horror and um, you talk to anybody and they will have some version of it. And as writers or creatives in any field, we kind of just take that and refract it through some sort of different lens. And, and that to me is so interesting to do. So I'm, you know, reading that and, you know, hearing about everybody's different approaches and just the existence of this anthology is really exciting to see that. Cause I think that's basically what, what it's doing is refracting and the concept of horror through all of these different lenses. Hmm. Uh, Kaming? Yeah, I was, this anthology has definitely been a huge awakening for me and definitely like a moment of uh, finding my origins as a writer. And I was so honored <laughs> to be reached out to for this anthology too, because I thought, oh my God, I, I'm being considered, you know, part of the horror uh, world of horror. And that's so exciting and thrilling to me because I think I convinced myself in childhood and you know adolescence that I was really horror at first just because mm. I couldn't watch horror movies. I was so terrified. I remember my brother took me to like the Tower of Terror at California Adventures one time. <laughs> one time and I cried for like six months straight. I couldn't look at myself <laughs> in mirrors. It was terrifying. Um, so I thought that I was just, I, I thought that I was just like anti-horror in a certain way, but I realized that that fear is a part of it. And being so susceptible to fear was actually made me in some ways like more sensitive and more kind of porous um, to what I was encountering. And so what I, I realized is like, oh, it's not an aversion. It's actually um, this like full, like this whole body throwing myself into that fear. Mm -hmm. um, and I also similarly, I feel like I started to realize that my whole lineage had been a part of that like oral storytelling ghost story form. And how much ghost stories um, and, again, the presence of the dead and of death itself was such a huge part of my life. Um, and I always thought, like, oh, all of these rituals that I grew up with, all of these beliefs, they're all about an aversion to death, like ways to ward it off. But I realized, like, all, even those kind of death warding rituals are all about an awareness of death and an incorporation mm -hmm. of death into your daily life. So, again, it wasn't this, like, turning my back to it. It was actually that my entire life had been structured around thinking about death and like digesting mm -hmm. death in all its forms and being really obsessed with death and ghosts um, and various forms of haunting and possession and things like that. And I just hadn't realized it because I mistook like 
I don't know, uh, fear for for like not engaging with something. But yeah. <laughs> but I felt like fear and being horrified and being fascinated, all of those things are inextricable. Like they can't be an aversion and an obsession, attraction and repulsion, like all those things were one. And I mm. just it just took me a long time to realize that. And um yeah, now I'm like, let's embrace it. <laughs> right? let's embrace yeah. it. <laughs> That's so cool. I, that is really funny that you didn't think you felt your work was very like horror. Granted, I have a, a very like kind of like loose definition of horror, but I feel like even just like on the your vocabulary choices, like everything is so visceral, body based. Like it's just like very relentless and uh, how it approaches like the mortality of the body. So yeah, that's that's cool. Uh, Beatrice, I'd like to go next. Sure. Um my early engagement with horror was child um in church because I always felt like these really complex and they all usually had to do with horrific things, living people, sometimes lost generations and like um, and they didn't work well most of the time for the people. And was kind of and kind of that as a really good thing. And I think from a young age, I was really interested in kind of people uh, uh, being um, people like hearing about, but not horror or picturing it as horrific or as common um, and that kind of to me it was almost like a cognitive these learned like learned patterns and people didn't really consider it they just accepted it um, but then also those things community and how it continues generation stories that, that we revere and we shove. And it was like really to me from a very young age. I, I, I took, but it's fascinating to me. And all that's been um that's been my my engagement with horror then I got into naturally after that and, um, and a little bit of better uh, for sure uh, I would say and Zora Neale Hurston my first gothic um, mm. like hero they're just like important and um yeah that's nice yeah I feel like like you're saying cognitive dissonance is kind of like the very core of what makes like any horror like so like intimate and effective um because we I think yeah yeah, we don't realize how much we're like compartmentalizing and like setting to the side just so we can kind of like get through the day (laughs) um but yeah, that's all super, super relatable. Um, 
Hallie, how are we doing on time? I know we started a bit late, so. Um, let's do like another question or two. Okay, that sounds good. Yeah. Um, okay, sweet. Uh, okay, I'm, this is not a question I listed, Cassie, but I was just thinking about it. But I'm interested. Okay. I know you all said you, you obviously all said you liked the artwork, but I'm interested mm -hmm. in like how you feel about the artist's interpretation. Because for the people that got the book, I didn't let the the authors like talk with the artists. Like usually there's like a conversation about the piece, but I kind of wanted it to just be like solely the artist's interpretation to kind of add their own layer to the story. I don't know how successful that was. I love all the pieces, but I'm interested in your personal like reactions to the pieces you got. Um, Karen, how did you feel about yours? Oh, you're muted. <laughs> uh, sorry, can you repeat that? I'm just like interested in how you feel about the illustration you got to go with your story. And like Oh, I loved it. I loved it. And all the illustrations in the book are like fantastic. Mm. And I since um investigated my illustrator's work and her work is like beautiful. Um yes. just in general. So if you, you know, want to look her up, I think you won't be disappointed. Here's the yeah. illustration with Karen's. Yes. And I love the moment that she picked. Um, there it is. Yes. Um, that's from the end of the story. So I love that she picked that moment out of all the moments. Um, and it, you know, it's atmospheric and, and I think it conveys the mood of the story, which is mm -hmm. um, what I love when illustrations accompany, you know, uh, my work is, you know, when the artist can capture the mood, I think that's, that pretty much nails it. But yeah, well, I just got the book this week or uh, last week, and um, nice. Oh, so yeah, I was flipping through all of it and just you know, gaga over the art. All of the art is just beautiful. I think you, Yay. you all, yeah, you all picked like bang on perfect <laughs> artists for for the work, and it's all different. Um, so people have an idea that it's all different artists, and so the styles are all different, but they all seem to match the story. Um, mm. So I'm, you know, anxious to dig in and read everybody's work and and see how the two correlate. I'm a very visual writer, so you know anything. Mm, nice. Describe, I, I mean, I imagine my stories like a like a movie in my head and just try and describe what I'm seeing, basically. So mm -hmm. any any combination of art and story for me is is gold. And so nice. I love it. I love it. That's awesome. Um, yeah, the artist for your story is A Liang Chan. Um, they're at fourmyths.com. Um, and yeah, K-Ming, do you want to talk a little bit about your feelings about the art? Yeah, I'm so obsessed with it. Wait, let me show you. Yeah, yeah. Whoa. So cool. I, I've flown Hong, yes. and um, I'm really obsessed with it. First, because there's there are two skinned bodies, which is always a good time. Yeah. <laughs> exposed, exposed flesh is always a really fun time. Um, also, a lot of teeth imagery. Um, and I'm someone who has a lot of teeth horror and mouth horror dreams, yes. um, and which is very common, you know, like broken, bloody teeth or spitting teeth out. So I was like, wow, this has unlocked um, <laughs> my my sleep paralysis demon. But also what I love <laughs> about it is it's so circular. And maybe this is getting too much into a close reading of the illustration, but um, so much of the story is about like the circularity of life and death because it's about these like constant resurrections and the fact that it's so circular, it's like this open 
tunneling um, mouthful mm. of sinew and meat and tendon. I don't know. It has that circular feeling where it's not just, it's not linear. It's not, it's not literal. It's like this um, really evocative, evocative. Um, yeah. Like gaping. Yeah. <laughs> a hole in oh, a piece. So which is so good. <laughs> I'm obsessed with it. Yay. <laughs> I'm so glad. Yeah. Uh, Sloan killed it on that. Uh, a fellow New Zealand artist, Cassie. Um, and yeah, Beatrice, how did you feel about your piece? Okay, here it is. Yes, so good. Oh my god, it's amazing! Amazing by um Molly Mendoza. And uh, Molly picked also uh, like a moment at the story where my main character is uh, angry and frustrated. Word and a stab of computer screen, and it's just lovely. They play the black microphone again, uh, which beautiful, beautiful, <laughs> perfect. No notes. <laughs> I love the, the violence and the movement in that um in that picture is really yeah. awesome. Yeah. Like, and yeah, then, so I love the screen teeth also. There's like there's teeth that are like coming, which amazing, beautiful. Yeah, it's yeah, so cool I, just I, to see all the different like the, the the different way artists approached each thing and which what bits they took from the stories. And some of them are quite literal, and some of them are more um more like taking the story as a whole and. Yeah, it's just so cool to see to see the way that the artist interpreted the stories and, and put it on the page in a different way. Yeah, totally. I was like, most of these artists I know, and so I did not give them much direction. I basically just wanted them to have like an experience with the story. And I was like, you can choose what, you know, what element you want, if you want to do like some sort of montage or just keep it simple. And I was just like, so it was, it was very, it was like very exciting to like get the pieces back and see like what jumped out to them and like what connected with them. Um, but yeah, I am like so happy you liked all the pieces. Um, Cassie, I think we probably have time for one more question. Highly yeah. stop us if, if you want us to wrap up, but. Um, no, I'll never stop you, but so I think <laughs> one more question would be great. <laughs> all right, okay, well, cool. last question. Okay. Um... What was what were there any kind of challenges that you that you had when writing this 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 particular story? I know for a lot of us, um, a lot of the venues and magazines we write for are quite white, so sometimes we feel we have to write certain ways. Um, was there a challenge in in writing whatever you wanted for this particular call out? Oh, you're muted again, Karen. Karen, you're muted. Karen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm newborn. Um, <laughs> uh, no, there, there weren't any challenges in that sense, um, which is always, like I said, like it's a good sign, um, especially with short stories, because there's such, uh, I have, uh, you know, Historically, I had more experience writing novels, and that is a, just a challenging form, period. Um, and short stories are challenging in a different way. But I found, you know, 
usually when I, if I latch onto an idea and I, I feel that it's um, percolated enough um, and I know generally how it's going to end. And I always know with short stories, like the feel of it, when the words are going on the page, it's going to sound really woo woo, but maybe other writers can, <laughs> you know, you just came in can chime in if this is the case for them too. But like, I always know immediately when I'm writing it, if once the tone is, is set, if it, if I hit it, um, and then it's gangbusters from there. And then, then the, the challenge is, is wrapping it at the, at the right point. And because it's a short story, you are restricted in that way. But I like that challenge of, can you say what everything you need to say in the most succinct form possible? And I didn't, you know, know exactly how this story was going to end. So I remember I was said, I'm just going to keep writing until it feels right. And so, and I purposely, you know, because I, I love experimenting in the short story form. So I knew I didn't want to, you know, end it in a kind of like a typical way, really stylistically. So I just kind of let myself off the leash, so to speak, with that, because of the type of story I was writing. I didn't feel that I had to stick to any specific kind of form. And um, so I, I love the things that might have been challenging, I guess I took as like inspiration and mm -hmm. let that propel me. And um, and it's much less frustrating in a short story than it is with like in a novel, <laughs> to be honest. So, you know, you kind of take that stuff head on. And, and because I had a good feeling with the story right from the start and it was very easy to write for whatever reason. And you don't look a gift horse in the mouth in that case. When you're a writer, you just kind of like go with it. And um, I remember I wrote it pretty, pretty quickly, too. Um, and so that again, that's always a good sign. So it must have been that I was just like inspired by the I as soon as you know Sloan reached out and you know told me what it was about, I was like, yes. And you know, I you know went around in my head maybe for a week or two about possible things. And then as soon as I hit on this idea, I I started and it just went. And I had the concept of the town and all of that. So um once I, I think I was just so inspired by what the anthology was doing and by the prospect of exploring um horror specifically people put things out into the universe because literally you know before sloan sent me that email and cassie i was thinking you know what i'd really like to write more horror and i was you know and i was working on stories that i would just write and and send to publications but you know when someone actually approaches you wanting to you to write something it's it's even more motivation so literally like i don't know within a month or something i get this you know email out of the blue <laughs> saying, hey, we're doing this anthology. It's going to be illustrated. It's about horror from people of color. And I was like, yes, the universe <laughs> listens. So, you know, I'm here as testimony. <laughs> that happens. It's happened more than once, too. So I'm this year has been me exploring the horror genre. So I'm, you know, just go with it when that happens. And yes, I guess I'm fortunate in that way. I didn't hit any snag, so to speak. Nice. Easy sailing. <laughs> Um, Kaming, how was your experience writing the story? Yeah, I kind of had a similar experience in that getting started was kind of like this floodgates experience. Like I knew as soon as I, I know what the first sentence is, I find that that's enough of a seed to kind of fully grow the story. So I knew that the first sentence was going to be my grandfather dreamed of me before I was born. And I was like, oh, intriguing. <laughs> um, and then it kind of um, unraveled from there. But what I found really challenging is um, the story is a triptych, so it's in three sections, three resurrections, and each section has its own kind of complete arc. So they are kind of three complete stories in a way, mm -hmm. and they can be read one section at a time, and they, they still kind of stand alone. 
Um, and that was fun, but it was also challenging because I wasn't sure whether the triptych structure was really working and whether these three sections could kind of build on each other in an interesting way. But I ended up realizing like this is the form that the story wants to take by nature of it being these three resurrections. So there was a reason for the form. And then I was able to like let myself um, really lean into that triptych. And then also another thing that I, I struggled with was the ending because at the very end of the story, it's kind of left up to the reader how how you want to see the grandfather. Um, the last image is of like the lid of the of a shoebox like popping open like a coffin, um, and the grandfather is described as having fly wings. And whether or not the grandfather is a fly or a human the size of a shoebox <laughs> or like a fly human hybrid or some other creature entirely is really it's not described. Um, and I had so much fun, took so much pleasure in very detailed descriptions of the grandfather and every single character up to that moment that I was really scared. I was like, oh no, I'm ending the last sentence. <laughs> it's so ambiguous. It's so open-ended. Um, but I realized, oh, that's one of the pleasures of the genre is uh, I feel like horror really leans into like the audience participating in a certain way um, and it feeling very collaborative. Um, and I wanted to preserve the mystery of it because I thought it would mm. be too simple to just be like, and he's a bug again, you know, yeah. um, he's a person again. And so I just thought it, it just made more sense for, for the mysteriousness. I, I felt like it, it brought a sense of possibility that mm. um, this being could be anything and anyone and that there's a kind of beauty in that um, and not trying to like use my descriptive brain to like whittle away all the possibilities. I love that. I love that about horror in general. Like it is, you, you don't have to spell everything out. You don't have to pin everything down, and you can let you can let the reader's imagination do some of the work for you because they will create their own terrors um, in place. Yeah, totally. Uh, what about you, Beatrice? How was it writing this story? I would say that. Um... It went really well, actually. Um, I'm just like you, uh, Karen, when, or no, I think it was, uh, came in and said this about like the, the first sentence. Like as soon as, as, as soon as I know the first sentence, I kind of know the vibe and I can ride the vibe out like a wave. And I, and I kind of know the patterns. I know the rises and the rises and falls of <laughs> words. And, um, yeah, I, it started off pretty easy, actually, I would say. I actually finished the first draft, and I realized that I was kind of under word count. So I had to go back in and, like, fill in more details and kind of decide where I wanted to say more and where I actually could kind of leave it more ambiguous. Um, but, yeah, no, I wouldn't say I had a challenging time with this at all. And I think, if anything, the most challenging thing was that it was very... Um, it's a, for me, this was like a very visceral thing to write. It was very uh, kind of dark and it was, uh, I mean, it's mental illness personified. So it kind of can't escape a whole lot of darkness there. Um, I guess I would say that would be the challenging part was actually the content of the story rather than the making of the story. Interesting. Very cool. I love that you all just got like surfed through your stories, basically. Like, <laughs> that's amazing. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So cool. Um, well, we can probably wrap up this launch. Um, it's a little bit over time, but yeah, thank you so much for your readings. 
um, for this conversation. I love hearing all about how, how you're writing, how it came to you. Um, yeah. Cassie, do you have anything, any closing words to add? Um, just thank you all for coming and being here. Thank you to our lovely authors um, and to Skylight Books and to everyone in the audience as well. Uh, this book has been an amazing experience and we are so, so happy it's out there in the world now and that you can all read things. Um, yeah. Yay, more horror. <laughs> Yay. Um, as a representative for all, I'm just going to say all indie bookstores, we are so, so happy that this book exists. Um, and can you so it's available at skylight can you also just say where else it's available and where else people can purchase the book so it's only available in print at skylight uh firestorm co-op and blue stockings in new york uh other than that there are no other print editions that was limited for the kickstarter but there are ebooks available at basically all the book selling websites so however you read, for those of you in the audience, um, support this book. There should be more books like this. Um, big thanks to Sloan and Cassie for making it happen and for all of the writers um, who participated and, and read tonight. So yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for hosting us too. Yay. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> thanks, um, everybody. Good night, everyone. Good night. All right. Night, everybody. Thank you. Good night. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.